Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to compare creedal Christian thought and Mormon thought. And today, this is just me, Skylar. I've got my comfy socks, I've got my tea, and we're going to do a bonus episode together. So, where have we been so far? I figured for this episode, we'd hit some of the highlights that as I look back on the previous eight to nine weeks, I'm, I thought it was unfortunate we didn't hit or we didn't hit hard enough. Where have we been? So in the Come Follow Me manual, if you look at the first eight weeks or nine weeks, if you include the first one, we have been through Matthew chapters one through seven, Mark chapter one. Luke chapters 1 through 5, and John chapters 1 through 4. And I have a list of about five, maybe six things, and we'll see how long this takes. So I hope you're okay if we're jumping around a lot. First, I thought this was so well said I had to share. On the verse that God is spirit, I found... A section of Reform, it's in a book called Reform Dogmatics by Gerharders Voss. Gerharders Voss. Um, he says this What does scripture mean when it calls God spirit? The Hebrew and Greek words that mean spirit are both wind. From this starting point, we discover the following A. Wind is that power among material powers that seems to be the most immaterial and invisible. We feel it but we do not see it, John 3.8. When God is called spirit, it therefore means his immateriality, John 4.24. B. Wind or breath is the mark of life, and thus stands for life or in place of enlivening power. Thus it is the case that God's spirituality also means his living activity. As spirit, God is distinguished from man, indeed all that is created, that is flesh, that is powerless and inert in itself, Spirit is thus what lives and moves of itself. Jeremiah 17.5, Isaiah 31.3. C. Wind is the spirit of life, or the breath of life, belongs with something else enlivened or activated by it. God can also, in this sense, be called spirit insofar as he is the enlivener and source of life for the creature. That is so both in a natural sense as well as in a spiritual sense. That agrees with the fact that men or sorry, that man can be called flesh in a twofold sense, both insofar as he naturally has no power of life in himself and insofar as he is spiritually dead and cut off from God. In the latter sense, the word takes on its bad meaning, which it has throughout the entire scripture, Psalm 104.30 and 2 Corinthians 5.16. D. The spirituality of God implies that he is a rational being with understanding, will, and power. It's a great section. That's pages 24 and 25 of Voss's Reform Dogmatics. Okay, so what are some things that have just been coming up again and again and we haven't gotten to in some of the episodes? I think number one, number one in my mind as I made this list, was what the Trinity is and isn't. It's often said that Joseph Smith has a Trinitarian view in the Book of Mormon. Um, it's a, you hear it often. And that then he changed into his polytheistic view, though they may not use the term polytheism, which we did cover. Well, I do think there is development in Joseph Smith's thought, but I don't think it, is, it ever was Trinitarian. And, and why do I say that? Because I think some of this comes down to a misunderstanding of what the Trinity is. You can see this in the confessions when we confess there's one God in three persons, in and as three persons. The first heresy that we see, at least likely the earliest, and it comes through in multiple names. You'll see Sabellianism, Praxianism, teachings of Noetus, Really, the term should be called modalism. That, that is a summary of all this. And what it is, it's a monotheistic 
doctrine for sure. But it's one God, and they don't differentiate, really. It's the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are masks, are modes, are manifestations, forms, so to speak. And of course, what they're trying to guard against is polytheism. That, that is what the modalists are trying to guard against. But the early church fathers, this is of course pre-Nicene, um, Tertullian and others, what, what do they point to to argue against modalism? They point to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying to the Father. They point to the baptism, Father, Son, and Spirit. They point to the cross. Right? So what modalism does is it tries to make God more manageable. It oversimplifies our view of God. And the fact of the matter is, what we know of God, we know from Scripture. And Scripture consistently teaches there is one God, but we see the one God in three co-eternal but distinct persons. Right. So um, if one denies monotheism, you're just inevitably going to see polytheism. If you deny the equality of the persons, you're going to have to subordinate one of them. Uh, typically the Son, the Spirit. And if you deny the existence of the three persons, right, it's just this one undivided essence, and it's hard to do justice to the interactions between the persons, and even indeed interaction uh, in the world by God. So it is true, if you look in the Book of Mormon, and I have here a 1830 edition, of course, a reprint, obviously. It is true that if you see in there, often Jesus is considered God, even the Father. And that's, that's where you're going to need to see this. If you look um, at Mosiah 15, right, when the Son is called the Eternal Father or Christ is the very eternal Father. He is God the Father, Mosiah 15.4. This is not Trinitarianism. And um, some, some have caught this. I, I really like this comment um, by Dan Vogel in, in something he wrote. Passages which speak, and this is of the Book of Mormon, passages which speak of the Father sending the Son, Alma 14.5, 3 Nephi 27, 13, and 14, 26, 5, do not necessarily support a Trinitarian non-modalistic view and should be understood in light of Ether 4.12. And this is quotation from Ether 4.12 in the Book of Mormon. He that will not believe me will not believe the Father who sent me. For behold, I am the Father. Okay. That's not something we see in the New Testament at all. Right? In fact... It's interesting that, to just look at John for a moment, how consistently we see John is careful to distinguish Father from Son, almost anticipating the heresies that would come. And it's sad and unfortunate that that care is then used to then attack the Trinity by those who don't understand the unity of God that is there, that we also affirm that God is one, and that is not compromised by any of the New Testament authors. Continuing with Dan Vogel. In other words, Jesus as the Father sent himself into the world to redeem his people. Nor do passages which speak of the Son being prepared from before the foundation of the earth, Mosiah 18.13, necessarily imply two persons existing before the incarnation. Consider the following. This is Ether 3.14. I redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. Then Vogel again, the Book of Mormon therefore violates a major tenet of Trinitarianism by confusing the persons of the Father and Son and by referring to Jesus as the Father. And that is just, for those that know their Christian history, their Christian theology, that is a huge no-no. In fact, that is where we distinguish most clearly between the persons, is the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, and the Father and the Son, neither of whom are the Holy Spirit. What is interesting is that where in the current Book of Mormon it says Christ is the Son of the Eternal Father, 
1 Nephi 11.21, 11.32, and 13.40. In this 1830, and I have one here um, where you can see it, it, it used to refer to him as the Eternal Father. So the, the first edition not only had that, it called Mary the Mother of God, which is ironic because we do affirm that, uh, Mary is Theotokos. But in 1837 edition, a lot of this was changed to the Son of the Eternal Father, and Mary is called the Mother of the Son of God. And do we only see it there? No. In fact, in the JST of Luke 10, um, verse 22, Joseph Smith changed Luke 10, 22 to say, No man knoweth that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, but him to whom the Son will reveal it. So I think this is a great insight into whether deliberate or not. This is Joseph Smith's misunderstanding of the Trinity if not rejection of the Trinity, depending on how conscious it was, I haven't seen evidence to indicate that Joseph Smith actually understood the Trinity. This sounds like heretical, confused evangelicals of the 1820s and 30s, but um, but clearly by melding the identities, this is, he's also kind of inserting modalism into the New Testament, which if modalism is already in the New Testament, why would it be there? Why would he need to change it? So, here's the thing to know, though, is the Council of Nicaea later on, where we get a more clear articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, it is responding to not just modalism, but this overcorrection to modalism in the form of sayings and teachings of Lucian and then his student Arius. And what they're trying to guard against, once again, is that they are, they, they're guarding monotheism in their view. So, is Jesus a created being? That's the question. So, if you, if you draw, if you write the word God and you draw a firm line under it, and underneath you say everything else, creation, everything created, which side of the line is Jesus on? That, that really is the question. So it's key to get this right, because the second, as the anti-modalists, who recognize the distinction of the Father and the Son, but don't know how to reconcile that with monotheism, and therefore reduce Christ to a created being, even if that was before the creation of the world, the question is, what side of the line is the sun on? Which side of the creator-creation distinction line is Jesus? And where, where does the unity that we do see between Father and Son, where's the emphasis if we deny Jesus as being on the God side of the line? Um, so, Lucian taught, for example, that the Father is the only unbegotten ones, therefore the Son is created. Uh, Arius is famous for his phrase, there was a time when he was not. But the great church father Athanasius, among many others, keep in mind the finding of the council, there's probably 300 or so bishops at the Council of Nicaea, is that if the Son is a creature, how can we worship him without committing idolatry? Indeed, moreover, if the Son is a creature and God alone saves, how can Jesus save us? How would the cross secure salvation? And indeed, what you see is that getting God wrong leads to getting everything else wrong, right? So if God alone saves, and Jesus is a creature, how can he actually save? What it does is it reduces him to a model of salvation, of an example for salvation. And interestingly enough, this is the context in which Athanasius is defending the full deity of Jesus. Now, for those who have um, followed Mormon apologetics, LDS apologetics, for any length of time when it comes to early Christianity— you'll know that they often quote Athanasius in defense of them 
when he speaks of man becoming God or something like that, a quote like that. You know, God became man, so man could become God. Really, that's not the best translation of that line to begin with. But let me read you a few quotes from from Athanasius, who, by the way, stood up even when this was not the most popular position among various segments of the church and their leadership, including the Bishop of Rome. Let me just read a few quotations from him. Uh, drawing from On the Incarnation of Our Lord Jesus Christ Against Polinarius. He says this, For the Holy Trinity of the Godhead is alone manifestly uncreated and eternal and unchangeable and unalterable. So he says that. He says, Scripture says, Word became flesh, not the flesh became word. So in that context, how can what he said be quoted in support of of a worldview in which God became God by virtue of obedience to law. Indeed, listen to this in chapter 5. But let no one venture to, th- venture to think of the Godhead of the Word, that in the same sense as it is from God, so too are we, as the most impious Arians venture to say, or that at any rate it is so in reference to the exhibition of the flesh and to the form of the servant. So he's assuming God is assuming flesh. That's how he's talking about that. But the word, the divine nature of the person of Jesus is uncreated. Indeed, he point blank says the Son is not another God. When we confess in one Lord Jesus Christ, we're not saying he's a second God. We're saying he's the one God. And really the line in this very book on the Incarnation should be translated, the word was made man in order that we might be made divine. In other words, we're passive recipients of the righteousness of Christ as he transforms us and sanctifies us. So that's something that has come to my mind quite a bit. And I hope that's helpful um, when it comes to thinking about the Trinity and the development of Christian thought in terms of how to articulate what the scriptures teach and the development of Mormon thought. And to just finish that point, by the time you get to the Nauvoo period for Joseph Smith, you have overt polytheism. And once again, you see that even in the change of the Book of Mormon that, that we saw. Once again, that he's, he's going from a modalistic monotheism to an overt polytheism, which those are the two extremes we're guarding against by the terms we use in the Nicene Creed, right? which is, once again, as a review, modalism or Sabellianism, in which there's only one divine person who assumes three masks of revelation, Father, Son, and Spirit. The other extreme that's also an error and a heresy is tritheism or tri-godhood, because it emphasizes the threeness of the persons to such an extent that it loses the unity of God. It loses the oneness of God that's a non-negotiable. Indeed, Jesus taught was the most important commandment in Mark 12. Joseph Smith went from one extreme to another one. And the other one was so far the other way that, indeed, I'm not even sure it's a heresy anymore. Heresy comes from within, and you can see that in the shared language between Christians and and LDS. But, you know, Hinduism is not a Christian heresy, right? (laughs) It's Hinduism. Heresies come from within, and indeed, as I've pointed out several times, I'm not sure why they only focus on three. If you start with the essentials of the Nauvoo period of Joseph Smith's teachings, though he did claim he was teaching it longer than that, but I don't think that's historically true. I think he's just asserting that in the King Follow discourse. I mean, they're married. Every father has a father. In his last sermon, in I think it's called Sermon in the Grove, something similar. Not only does he call the Trinity a monster, but he talks about, he uses a verse in Revelation to claim that God the Father has a father, right? So why the focus on three in modern LDSism is, I think, to, to use a word, a mystery to me. Um, and one point, I'll put an article in the show notes that leads to one other point we weren't able to get to in an episode um, coming out soon in terms of releasing on prayer. And of course, it's been a controversy in 
LDS history, more recent Mormon history about praying to Heavenly Mother. And of course, I, I came from a, a more spiritualist LDS family insofar as I was raised LDS. That was totally okay with praying to Heavenly Mother, to be clear. So, um, of course, I was always confused at the pushback that you get with a Gordon B. Hinckley, for example, or um, Nelson, who is known for his teachings on prayer, though I'm not sure he's publicly explicitly rejected it, but if you look at his teachings on prayer, what he doesn't say about Heavenly Mother. But the fact that that's a debate should show the difference in our view of God and goddesses, so to speak. Um, and really, even on any of these issues, whether prayer, gospel, anything like that, faith, the object is way more important than our subjective side to those things. As the great Athanasius saw, what, how many years ago? 17, 1800 years ago? Okay. Here's another one. And I just haven't had enough time to deal with this. And it's not as important as the ones we did, but I figured an episode like this would be a great opportunity for this. What is the spirit of Elijah? And indeed, um, who is Elias? So I, I was just curious. I grabbed my old quad with all my missionary notes in it. Of course, before mission, post-mission. And I looked up Luke Luke 1, 17. And, of course, for those who don't know, the LDS still use the King James Version, of course, a particular. There's many different kinds of the KJV. Um, but they use the most popular. And it says in Luke 1, 17, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Elias. Now, if you have an ESV or anything else, right, it's going to say Elijah. And even in this LDS quad, what's interesting is in the footnote, it said this is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Elijah. And that's correct. It, this is a quirk of the KJV. I'm, I'm not sure if it's because the KJV was done by committee, so you had different committees do different books, or if this is just something they didn't harmonize between all the references. But sometimes Elijah is called Elias, and it depends on if you're going to make those consistent. But they refer to the same person. Some of you are going to know where I'm going with this. To Joseph Smith, they're not. They're two different people. Indeed, he, he teaches, and this is in um, TPJS, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Joseph Fielding Smith version, so the most common version. He talks of the spirit of and office of Elias and Elijah. He says, there is a difference between those, the spirit and office of Elias and Elijah. It is the spirit of Elias I wish to speak of first, and in order to come at the subject, I will bring some of the testimony from the Scripture and give my own. So, Joseph Smith, I'll leave this for you to read if you're interested. I want to move on to some other things. But it, it, it doesn't just go there. Um, he claims they both appear to him. So, this is a Leahona magazine article. Why did, uh, Leahona being an LDS Church Magazine. Why did Moses, Elias, and Elijah appear in the Kirtland Temple? And this is um, part of a study of Doctrine and Covenants, section 110. And it talks about priesthood keys and authority. And says that on April 3rd, 1836, the Lord sent Old Testament priesthood holders, Moses, Elias, and Elijah, to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, um, to commit to them the following. So with Moses, they claim that he had priesthood authority, which needs to be passed out, passed down by the laying on of hands, by saying the right words in the right way to the right people, and then you pass that authority on. So it's, it's a pretty formal priesthood system. They claim Moses had the keys of the gathering of Israel. Elias, and this is interesting, Elias apparently lived in the days of Abraham. Footnote. 
I'm going to come back to that. They claim that Elias gave Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. We've covered several times what gospel tends to mean for LDS. I won't rehearse that here. And then Elijah, who they distinguish from Elias, Elijah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel about 900 B.C. Okay, a little more specific. And they claim from him the keys of the sealing power. Now, we talked about sealing, or we'll talk about sealing in the prayer episode where we covered the Lord's Prayer. This is a term that comes out of the magic worldview of Joseph Smith. And though the, the word can be used in various places at the time, or perhaps even in Scripture, it has this magical meaning of binding with the right authority and with that binding, it can only be unbound with someone with a higher authority. So, back to Elias. Once again, this is just a quirk of the KJV. It's the same person in the Bible. It's the same person. Footnote 5, Guide to the Scriptures, Elias. If you click on that, it's it says right there, Elias is the New Testament Greek form of Elijah. I think they have to defend the fact that he's distinct because Smith taught that and claims he appeared to him with Elijah. <laughs> so they cite DNC 84, 11 through 13, 1, 10, 12. That's it. A man in Abraham's dispensation who apparently lived in the days of Abraham. That's it. Why is that key? Well, because if Elijah is talked about at all by LDS, it's always tied to their temple system. Once again, the power of sealing. So if you go get baptized for the dead, which is you're, you're baptizing typically yourself for ancestors or ancestors' names who've been given to the temple to, um, to have baptized vicariously through the people that come to participate. And of course, it's by immersion, one holding authority. You have to say the exact words, and then it's full body immersion. If any point goes wrong, you redo it. Similarly, similarly with the endowment, you go through for yourself once, and then you go through for others vicariously as well, and it can apply to them if they accept it. On a popular level, you'll see Elijah used when it comes to genealogy, and they'll they'll use the verse we're going to go into a little more carefully um, in in Luke and Matthew associated with John the Baptist, and they will talk about the spirit of Elijah being associated with genealogy, but that's always a, a way of connecting it to their temple system by which they claim the unique authority uh, to do these things, because Elijah didn't appear to anyone else. He didn't appear to my pastor or anyone else to give him the priesthood authority to do this. Let's get into this. Um, and I'm, This is just a theme that we didn't cover before. Here's an opportunity to do so. If we open up to Luke 1. In Luke 1, 19, this is really interesting. The, I won't rehearse the whole story, but remember, this is Zechariah, who's of a priestly family, who's going to be the father of John the Baptist. He's officiating in the temple, and the angel appears to him, right, as he does so. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, right, gospel. What's the good news? We're left waiting. That's, that's one of those details. Wait. What was the news? Because he just goes on and says, Behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Notice, and we're going to get to this with a little bit I want to say about prayer at the end. Faith, the way Nelson talks about faith, it's a power. It's, it's something necessary to acquire the power of Jesus or something like this. And, and that's not an exaggeration. I'll cite some things later. But notice here, Zechariah is not only being blessed himself, he and his wife with a child, but he's blessing the whole world in spite of his unbelief immediately. If you continue going, it's in verses 16 and 17. Um, well, I'll come back to 16 and 17. If you keep going, finally, when's the next time Zechariah is able to speak, maybe to share an insight into this good news? It's when he says his name is John, right, in verse 63. 
And then we have this song of Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And, and visited, right? He's not even born yet, the Christ the Savior. He's in the womb of Mary. He has come. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, his child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Reminds you of John 1, right? John isn't the light. He came to bear witness to the light. Called the prophet of the Most High. And of course, who's he prophet for? Who's he preparing the world for? Jesus. Prophet of the Most High. Yeah, Jesus. And some of you who have been listening will get the reference. That's not Elohim who's distinct from Jesus. For you will be, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Notice that. The Most High and the Lord parallel. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's just powerful stuff. So that's the good news. The good news of salvation is already found in the womb of Mary. Now to go back to verses 16 and 17. This is, once again, Gabriel's message. And he will turn many of the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. And once again, who's he preparing the way for? Jesus. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then keep going. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And of course, once again, who are the people being prepared for Jesus, because he's the Lord God Most High, incarnate. Now, notice, that's a very different, where's genealogy in this? Where's ordinances done for the dead and temple ceilings? It's not there. It's not there. If you look in John 1, what's interesting is that he's asked if he is Elijah. John the Baptist is asked if he is Elijah in John 1, 21 and 25, and he denies it. This might be because people are looking back at Malachi 3, 1, 4, 5, where, when it talks about the coming of Elijah. And they might be taking that literally, that perhaps Elijah literally will come. When really what's happening is John the Baptist is an Elijah-like minister. Right? I mean, it might be this long-standing drought of the word of the Lord, if you look at the gap between Malachi and Matthew, for example. The idolatry. And then, of course, there are these subtle linguistic connections between even how John looked and Elijah looked. So, if, if John the Baptist, though, said he wasn't Elijah, where do we get this idea that he is the coming of Elijah? From Jesus. So, Christ said that John was the coming of Elijah in Matthew eleven fourteen, And uh, Matthew eleven fourteen is also one of these places where in the KJV, it talks about Elias. <laughs> so there's some confusion uh, in the mind of Joseph Smith on that. But Joseph, Jesus said he is fulfilling the Malachi prophecy. That's where we get it from. And it is interesting that, once again, we talked about Jesus as the bridegroom. But Jesus also told us that John is the friend of the bridegroom. Okay. How about this? This one I was really bummed I didn't get to, so I'm glad we're going to go through it right now. In John 1, Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a lot packed into here. But in order to get at it, what's really being taught here, if you have them, if not, I'm going to read it. 
If you open your Bibles to Genesis 28, starting with verse 10. And, uh, you know, this is in the context of, of course, all of Genesis so far, but in Jacob's life as well, which we won't rehearse all of that. But just keep in mind there's more here. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. There is a lot going on here. First off, in the context of Jacob's life, for those who want to say, look, you, you, in fact, I have, it is funny. Uh, I've heard many in LDS say, God helps those who help themselves, right? There's this, yeah, you do your part, God will do his part. Well, what do you do with Jacob? If you, if you just walk through the life of Jacob so far, he's a trickster. He's, you know, it, this is a very earthy story, right? He's, this is Israel in its most, at its most scandalous. I mean, he's clinging even to the heel of his brother when he comes out. He swindles him of his birthright. And now in this story, he's even isolated from his family. There's no sense so far of any fear toward God let alone man. And we just get this weird mixture of motives. And yet, notice, in this story, he's still the passive recipient of the promise of God. You want to see the scandal of the cross? Look at this story. This Jacob does not deserve this at all. And yet, God says what? I'm with you because of this promise I made to your grandfather. And then he affirms the promise to him. While he's laying on his back, he's not doing anything. He's inactive. But the passive recipient of this promise. And yet notice, even when he wakes up, he says, I'm with you. I'm going to go with you wherever. This is what Yahweh tells him. And what does he say? Surely the, the Lord is in this place. He focuses on the place. What is he seeing? This is translated as ladder, sometimes Jacob's ladder, it's really, it's a staircase. I know Robert Alter translated, translates it as a ramp. The, the image that's in mind is likely the, the ziggurat, the Babylonian ziggurat. And what are these? These are temples. They are man-made connecting points between heaven and earth. In fact, uh, ziggurats that we have um, in ancient places like Nippur, Asher, they're named things like the House of the Mountain, the House of the Mountain of Heaven and Earth. Uh, the one at Babylon was named the House of the Foundation of Heaven and Earth. There are these man-made temples, and if you see them, they look, I mean, pyramids have this similar structure as do the Mayan pyramids. There's this idea of ascending level to level to the top and it imitates mountains this kind of remoteness of the gods and gardens the kind of abundance of the gods and they imitate that and it's a way of creating a place where certain gods are comfortable communing with at least some people that are on their good side 
This might be also the image of the Tower of Babel, by the way, this kind of man-made temple, um, a temple made with hands. I, I really like um, how Meredith Klein dis- discusses um, this Im- the imagery, the, the architecture of these buildings in his kingdom prologue. He's focusing on Genesis 11, but once again, this is the backdrop to what Jacob likely is seeing. On the idea of building, right, we will build and, and bring God down. By this tactic, the satanic assault of sinners on heaven is camouflaged as a noble quest by an innocent, victimized mankind aspiring to transcend its existential predicament. The Genesis 11 event as a human effort to do the divine work of establishing the cosmic focus. The Babel builders would soar above their geophysical entrapment. In fact, he says that Babel itself, or this Babylon kind of thread throughout the Bible, is the idolization of men. It's inspired by the spirit of human autonomy, omnipotence. We can do it ourselves. Indeed, insofar as there are gods, we can get them on our side by doing things a certain way, at a certain time, in a certain manner, imitative of their lifestyle. I love this line. Turning the city of man into the temple of man, they projected a tower mountain that should open the way for them to the heights of the immortals. And he contrasts this, as Augustine did out of old, with the city of God, the kingdom received by grace. So what's this imagery doing in the Bible uh, as a positive? Well, I do think there is this theme of a heavenly temple. I don't want to get too bogged down into this, but once again, it's what we're seeing is the pagan counterfeit of something that there is truth to. When we talk of Christ being enthroned in the heavens, right? Indeed, when we talk of God creating in the beginning the heavens and the earth, I think there are a heavens and God, the Son, does rule there. And there is a way there that man is looking for, right? We were gereshed. We were divorced from the garden. We're in this world. We're fallen in sin. We're looking for a way back. And we see this in every culture around the world, at least that I'm aware of, that there is this sense of more, right? I think religion is just part of humanity. And there's always this sense in all religions, though, that Religion's about how we ascend. And I think the Bible is showing, on the contrary, this is God's story, and God will descend. So look, if you look back at this, Genesis 28, let's say he's seeing this staircase, this ramp of the ziggurat, this way to the heights, to the house of God. Well, interestingly enough, this verse that says that he stood above him, the Lord stood above it, could also be translated, and probably should be translated, stood beside him. This is really interesting, and and this is probably, it, it makes more sense of him also saying, I am with you in verse 15. So Jacob is resting, he's looking up, but he does not have to make the arduous ascent He doesn't have to be worthy enough. Not that morality doesn't matter, but he's not earning this, is my point. In fact, what's interesting is that though he sees angels moving up and down, he's inactive, and indeed, it's not the angels that deliver this message, but God himself, the angel of the Lord. God is not only remote in heaven, but down on earth with Jacob, and this withness is a theme that goes throughout the rest of the Bible. In fact, even in, in Jacob's own life, right, later on, he, he calls God his shepherd. And if you look at Psalm 23, right, this famous shepherding motif of God, in verse 4 it says, you are with me. This withness. And, and of course, Jacob, having been a shepherd in his life, would know what that means. Indeed, in Israel... Its standard greeting was probably the Lord be with you. We wonder if, in part, this is where it comes from. In English, right? 
God be with you. This God with us theme that we even see among the pagans, right? The, the ziggurats, the pyramids, the Mayans, etc. Always, of course, with our participation or our doing, <laughs> bringing him down. This theme continues even in the chapters that we covered so far this year. Indeed, if you look at Matthew 1, I think this is why it's so key, as Matthew includes it, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. Now, contrary to some sources I've seen, they will say, well, this, this doesn't have to be what Christians think it means. Well, let's, let's just look at Matthew. It's, it's interesting, once again, keeping in mind the, the tabernacle, and we've covered this a little bit, what, what that symbolized, the temple, what it symbolized, though the heaven and the heavens cannot contain you, he promised this covenantal presence, especially um, in these places. God is here. But, but who's he talking about? The birth of Jesus. And if you look at the beginning of Matthew and the end, you see this theme over and over, right? So Jesus, this is a drawing in part on Richard Bauckham's great book, Who is God? Jesus is a ruler. He is king of the Jews, right? 2, 1 through 6, and has authority over all things in heaven on earth, 28, 18. Jesus is the Messiah for the nations as well as for the Jews in 1 1, in 2 2 through 11. And the nations are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in 28 19. Jesus is worshiped. Keep in mind, in a monotheistic culture, 2 2, 2 8, 2 11, 28 17. And then this promise Jesus is God with us, 1 23 and 28 20. Right? Jesus is said to be God with us. Here he says, I am with you. So God's presence is equated with Jesus' own presence. Indeed, what does he say in Matthew 28 20? Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. He speaks as God, giving the assurance of divine presence with God's people that throughout the story of Israel had been given by God, including in Genesis 28. So, we see that the promise that, that's affirmed is also in Matthew, right? To bless all the nations. Where in Jacob, God promises to bless all the families of the earth. Now we see that more radically realized in Jesus' great commission. And it's just so powerful to think of this as even a descendant of Jacob. So why all of that? One other piece of the puzzle. This Son of Man title, if you look at Daniel 7, this is one of those key passages to study. Son of Man is a title Jesus also uses of himself, and it does not mean just a normal guy. Indeed, in the scene, if you look at Daniel 7, 9 through 15 or so, there is an Ancient of Days, and Brigham Young thought this was Michael, but this was also based on Michael God. But no, there's Ancient of Days takes a seat that's a place of authority in this divine council scene. But then Daniel also sees in the night visions with the clouds of heaven, and keep in mind, Yahweh is the cloud writer in the Bible. So here comes a second person, with the clouds of heaven, that's like a son of man. And once again, that's not how you would say if that's an of course. If he's just a man, there's no distinction between gods and men, to say nothing of angels and men. That's, that's a weird way to put it. Came to the Ancient of Days. There's two, but both are described in ways unique to the one God. Presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We just went through Matthew 28. I think this is clearly far from being, I'm just a guy, son of Adam or something like that. This is a divine title. There are two persons in this scene who are the one God. And that second person becomes God with us in the person of Jesus. So if we go back to John 1, let's keep in mind this saying, John 1, 51, that includes the angels of God ascending and descending upon, which are eight consecutive words in Greek that correspond exactly to the Septuagint of Genesis 28, 12. Septuagint being the Greek, ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. This is the first teaching that Jesus gives in the gospel. This is the first of 25 key sayings that start with, Amen, Amen, I say to you. And this is the first saying in John where he identifies himself as the Son of Man. This, there will be nine others. Notice also the context. So to read it, starting with verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And keep in mind, too, just up above in verse 41, right? They say, we have found the Messiah. Notice that in Mark, which is often seen as the clearest articulation of the person, the historical person of Jesus, and then, you know, it's often said that that developed into, you know, the, the God of John. Well, Messiah is in the first verse of John 1, and we see even in, say, the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2, that God alone can forgive sins. They're not wrong, but who's forgiving sins in this scene? I would say that's pretty high Christology. Well, similarly here, it's very easy to overlook the humanity of Jesus and John based on that similar framing, where it starts in the beginning was the Word, but here he's the Messiah, and indeed, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. All right, continue on. Meaning there's more harmony between the four than is often put out there. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good out of come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now this is interesting too. Think of who Jacob is known for, being deceitful, a trickster, grasping, working, deceiving. But here comes an Israelite. Keep in mind, Jacob's name is changed to what? Israel. Jacob is Israel. To Nathaniel, Jesus says, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in this, you will see opened. In Jacob's dream, angels ascend and descend on the staircase, right? But in the vision Jesus promises, angels ascend and descend on himself. The staircase equivalent is Jesus here, whereas Jacob, of course, is the parallel with the disciples. I think this is there's so much wrapped up into this, especially when you look at the broader context of John talking about the necessity of Jesus' descent and ascent. So, uh, reading Bauckham here. So, the disciples, constituting a kind of second Jacob, are to see the angels as ascending to heaven 
and descending from heaven on a staircase constituted by Jesus. In other words, Jesus himself is to be the way across the gap between heaven and earth. And this theme, as Bauckham points out, is tied in with this lifted up riddle where in John 3, 14 and 15, we see him drawing on the story of Numbers 21, 6 through 9 in the raising of the bronze serpent. Look, look and live. And they wouldn't do it. Well, Jesus says, believe in me and live, and people won't do it. But notice that, you know, Jesus has come down from heaven to people who did not deserve it. To people who are often isolated, even from their own families in this world. But how is he going to fill that gap? That's where you bring in this death exaltation motif. Because Jesus is being lifted up is going to be what? The cross. And as he's lifted up on the cross, bruised and dying, suffering, he's not only for himself, but for his own people, earning salvation and indeed even ascension into the highest heavens. The cross creates a way to heaven that he takes himself and that those who believe in him can also take. Thus, he can say in John 12, 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Indeed, does not this create even more meaning, biblically derived meaning, not just an impression we're projecting, Scripture being a window, not a mirror. No, that window into the greater biblical teaching to see what Jesus means when he says he's the way. Mystics, religionists of almost all times and places have sought the way based on something they do or are, or will become, or will progress. But here, the uncreated, eternal God has been enfleshed to take his people for them. He doesn't just open up the way, though he does that. He is the way. Similarly, this is not a story of law turning into a story of grace, a theme that we haven't hit enough, but we'll have plenty of opportunity going forward. No, the grace is already there in Jacob's dream, right? The significance of the staircase is not that Jacob must ascend it to reach God in heaven, but God has descended it in order to be with Jacob on the earth. Indeed, I, I think it's not too, too far stretched to say, based on this passage and others, that Jacob's ladder itself is a symbol of Jesus' lifting up, being lifted up on the cross. He is our temple. He is our tabernacle. Those are all tied in in this same gospel. This is the gospel. When uh, Mormon podcasts will say Jesus restored the gospel, that's a theme in David Ridges, who is... Uh, an institute, uh, LDS Institute guy who wrote the commentary that's being promoted this year heavily. Um, If you go into a desert book, you'll see it. He does this as well. Jesus restored the gospel. Jesus restored the gospel. There's nothing to restore. It's there already in Genesis. There's grace in the Old Testament and law. There's grace in the New Testament and law, but what we do see in Jesus is a heightening, an intensifying of both. Okay, could say more, but should move on. I just wanted to show that it's the same gospel, whether Genesis twenty-eight or John one. It didn't have to be restored. Is my point. And the gospel is not what we do, but what the mysterious God of Sinai has found in and as His Son did for us. The last thing I want to point out, this will be an episode that I think will be released after this one. But just to set it up a little bit, I it'll be a I hope you guys are ready. Buckle your seatbelts for the prayer episode. 
one thing I wanted to point out is what I was getting at is that as, as is faith, prayer is often talked about by Nelson, among others, as some sort of power, way to actualize power or something like this. Let me give you a couple examples. This, this theme is there. So we already pointed this one out, but notice it's that you make it principles and then it becomes about you realizing them. So it says, this is in the seminary manual, how can these principles help you access the Savior's power to help you in others resist temptation? In Nelson's talk, uh, Christ is Risen, right? He talks of faith in Jesus Christ as the foundation of all belief in the conduit of divine power. Okay, you think it's the foundation of all belief and the conduit of divine power. Is that technically wrong? We'll keep reading. It is, this is Nelson, it is our faith that unlocks the power of God in our lives. At times we may wonder if we can possibly muster enough faith to receive the blessings that we so desperately need. You obtain that power with your faith, trust, and willingness to follow him. Only your unbelief will keep God from blessing you with miracles to move the mountains in your life. So those, that's, those are sprinkled throughout that talk, but to get the sense, I wanted you to hear for yourself so you know I'm not just saying this. This is true of Nelson's talks on prayer as well. Notice, only your unbelief will keep God from blessing you. We just saw God blessing scandalously people who didn't deserve it in Jacob, in Israel himself. They say nothing of me and Christians out there, right? We're saved in our sin and then saved from our sin. But notice that. It's a power to access. These principles help you on your path. Well, as you'll hear when we get into it, that I think it is logical from their system, right? If God himself is not the self-existing one by which everything else was created, by whom everything else was created, then it starts to make sense that, well, if God became God by obedience to law, maybe those laws are the means by which I become him, and all of a sudden it becomes this subtle, though not so subtle once you catch on to it, subtle God above God, this impersonal set of principles by which you focus inward. You focus on yourself rather than on God and God through you on your neighbor. That is so different than the Lord's Prayer. I won't rehash what we already did, but I just wanted to read through it really quick, and then that'll be our first bonus episode of this sort. We also, I'm combining also Luke 11 here, right? He's praying all night. They say John taught his disciples how to pray. How do we pray? Which assumes we need to be taught. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice how God-centered this is. It's hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will on earth as it is in heaven. Then we go to the personal, right? Give us our daily bread, our bread for today. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation, showing he has every right to do that if he wants. This assumes his sovereignty. This is a God who's transcendent, who orders all things according to his will. I do think there's just so much power in this, who we're addressing, 
Father, not naturally, but the transcendent being. And then six petitions. I think there's symbolism even in the number. But this is not our means of acquiring power. This is how Jesus taught us to communicate to the transcendent creator of the universe, who is eternally the father of the eternal son in the person of Jesus, who has saved a people and in him, by the Spirit, are given the privilege, not the right, the privilege of addressing him as father. This is the same Jesus who taught there's only one God, who's also teaching us how to address God. He's not accountable to law or time or space. He created those things. So I just really wanted to hit that home. That'll be more preparatory for the next episode. But if you want some commentary in the Lord's Prayer, I recommend Calvin's Institutes. Um, It's often said, even there's an Eastern Orthodox uh, apologist who says, the spiritual disciplines are non-existent in Protestantism. Well, that's interesting because in Calvin's Institutes, the longest book is on prayer. Christians pray. And we pray that God will transform us. He saved us in our sin. We pray that he will sanctify us by himself to better live out the Beatitudes of the previous chapter. That is Matthew 5. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love feedback. We hope uh, you like what we're doing and hopefully we can even improve what we're doing and maybe do a little more. But until next time, praise God. Praise God.